Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 5 of The Activity Continues, a paranormal podcast. I'm Amy, the producer and host of this show, along with Megan and the other Amy. We are three soul friends who love to talk about the Dead Files TV show, along with other spooky and spooky-adjacent things. We are just starting our third year, and it's going to be the best one yet. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan, our resident scaredy cat. (laughs) I love this stuff, but it absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) It doesn't terrify me. Me neither. Most of the time. Hey, everyone. I'm the other Amy, sometimes referred to as Amy, Amy P, or AP. And I'm the voice of reason in the chaos, trying to keep these two spooky, goofy, lovely ladies in line. (laughs) We're creating a community of like-minded friends who love to discuss all things paranormal. Along with our thoughts and tangents, you will also hear listener stories and interviews with paranormal professionals, Dead Files clients, and people with personal paranormal experiences. So far, we've spoken to a witch, an intuitive, a shaman, a UFO abductee, and a handful of Dead Files clients. We're always looking for more cool and interesting people to talk to. So if you're interested, please reach out to theactivitycontinues at gmail.com or fill out the guest intake form on our website, theactivitycontinues.com. We'd love to hear from you. Come join us where the The activity activity continues. Deadland. We are your hosts. I am Amy, and this is Heather. Hello. Join us as we take a trip back in time to the 1920s and 30s in Minneapolis and discover the city's underworld. If you have not yet listened to the previous episode, The Early Years, I recommend you check it out as this will make way more sense if you have heard that. If you have heard that, you know that Volsteadland tells the stories of some unsavory characters and their shenanigans. Some of the details may be unsettling to some more sensitive listeners. Also, we swear. Please proceed with that in mind. We last left Izzy when he was arrested in connection with a bank robbery. He gave his brother's name, Harry Bloom, instead of his own. I'd said that we would cover the bank robbery in the next episode because it ended up being pretty long. So sit back, grab a drink of choice, and join us in 1923 when the Payne Avenue Bank was robbed. Okay, so full disclosure here, um, Heather and I already recorded the story of this case. But the day after we recorded it, I woke up in the middle of the night with a realization that I didn't even touch on or even think of when we were recording. And we'll get to that later. 
But the more I thought about this case, I knew that more research was needed. And I realized that I had to deep dive into a couple of different discrepancies. Hmm. Also, mostly when I ran it by my husband. Your toughest uh, critic by my, far. By far. <laughs> well, maybe mm. my second toughest after myself. <laughs> um, but he was like, what? This doesn't make any sense. It was all a heist planned by the cops. And I'm like, mm. well, shit, it, I guess it could have been. Got to look into that. Look into that a little <laughs> bit more. Um, I, I'll spoil it. I don't have an answer for that. It still could be. But um, anyway, um, honestly, at first, this was going to be when I first started looking into this, it was going to be there was a bank robbery in 1923. Izzy was arrested for it, but then it was never spoken of again. Maybe he pulled some strings and eh, moving along. But after spending weeks and weeks with the story <laughs> um, and all these characters, I now I totally want a film made about it. Ooh, about think, the bank heist? Yeah. Excellent. I think it'd be interesting, especially if you go leading up to all the stuff that the shenanigans these characters were up to before they robbed the bank and then the, the cover-up after and yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it a cover-up, but there's certainly some questionable choices mm -hmm. made. Okay. So January 20th, 1923, the Payne Avenue Bank in St. Paul was robbed. I have seen only two articles, one in the Mill City Times and one in the City Pages, that mentions this as part of Izzy's story at all. Both articles said he gave his name as Harry Bloom, and I realized that this is when he started using aliases. I think it's funny that he chose his brother's actual name instead of just getting mm -hmm. creative and using, you know, Tom Bloom or whatever. But um, I don't think he was trying to get his brother in trouble. His brother was younger. He was much younger. Yeah, he was born in 1906. So he was six years younger than Izzy. So he would have been 14 at the time of this because this happened in January. So he wouldn't have had a birthday yet. Um, so he would have been 14, Harry, actual Harry. And I really, I think that they would have mentioned that there was a child robbing a bank if, right. if it had been actual Harry. So I really do think it was Izzy. And everybody else does, too. I mean, other... I shouldn't say everybody. <laughs> everybody says so. <laughs> um, but it seems to be the popular opinion that, that it was him. Because he did use that same alias over and over again uh, in the future. So in the Mill City Times article, it says that some of his acquaintances were involved in a bank robbery. And when the police found the getaway car, it was parked in front of a, quote, familiar house. Izzy was inside the house with his friend James Pierce, and they were arrested. But he was never tried for this or even mentioned again in the robbery story. One of my sources sent me a typed up copy of his criminal record and the entry for the robbery says, arrested as Harry Bloom by officers Finlayson and Mullen with James Pierce, marked, quote, held for St. Paul, released to E. McNeely, St. Paul Police, January 20th, 1923, held for INV period, INV, I assume that's investigation, Hmm. I first read it as inventory, but that doesn't inventory. make any sense. <laughs> so um, held for investigation in St. Paul and released. It doesn't say when he was released, but according to the newspapers, he was held for at least three days. Three days. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are loads of discrepancies between the articles and the newspapers 
And for one thing, Izzy was not arrested near where the getaway car was found, for starters. Uh, The whole story is so convoluted that I had to postpone recording this twice uh, so that I could research more and try to get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So here we are, finally. We're trying this again. So if any of you listeners have any personal info about this case, please reach out via email or phone. The contact info is in the description or the show notes. And um, yeah, here we go. So the first article that I found about this robbery was in the Minneapolis Star the evening that the robbery took place on January 20th, 1923. Potentially interesting side note. Back in the day, there were two competing papers, the Minneapolis Morning Tribune and the Minneapolis Daily Star. In the 40s, they were consolidated. There were a few other papers that were bought at this time, and they were eventually all rolled into one. They published twice per day, a morning and an evening edition. The Tribune was the morning paper and the Star was the evening. And I remember this. I was, I'm old enough that I remember when there were two papers, morning and an evening paper. Yeah. In 1982, they merged they merged the two and became the star and tribune. And then in 1987, they just changed it to star tribune, Hmm. which is what it is now. Okay. So this is the headline of this article in the Minneapolis star. St. Paul bandit shot dead cashier near death. And then sub headline special officer and desperados have a battle of bullets. Ooh, desperados. No, I love it. First they called them (laughs) bandits. Now they're desperados. (laughs) They do sometimes say... um, It's like we're in the Wild West. I know. It kind of feels like it was the Wild West back then, (laughs) actually. I've seen other police reports for other incidences, and when they call somebody a desperate, he was a desperate. Ooh. So I think that's where the desperado comes from. Huh. Yeah. Anyway. Former policeman leads gang into the Payne Avenue State Bank where he is shot down while two of band escape. Customer also wounded in melee. Melee. Um, I'm going to attempt to do a play-by-play of what happened, according to the various newspaper reports. I did pull some hair out trying to decipher this, since they contradict each other so much. And I don't know if that's due to the details being sketchy, the newspaper reporters just making stuff up or filling in the blanks, or the printer, you know, when they send their stories to the printer, maybe they can't read their writing. I don't actually know how all that worked back then. Um I know they didn't email it in, so, you know. It ends up being a game of telephone. Yeah, it very much could be. Um, Or the narrative maybe having been changed by the police Mm -hmm. to cover what actually happened. Allegedly. So uh, here goes. Uh, At 9.30 a.m., the bandits drive up to the curb just around the corner from the bank entrance in a stolen car. Three of the bandits enter the bank, leaving a fourth bandit in the car. The head bandit, later ID'd as Cornelius P. Hurley, otherwise known as Neil, (laughs) he goes directly to the booth in which Special Officer Nelson Olson is stationed, while the other two, one carrying a black grip, which I assume is a kind of gun. I did a search on a black grip and it showed me like skateboarding stuff. Oh, yeah. Like like grip tape or something. Um, But then I, I tried it again like rewording it a little bit differently and it showed me all these guns and then I thought, oh shit, now I'm going to be on an FBI list (laughs) what I I googled. Um, Anyway, so uh, the other two, one carrying a black grip, make for the cashier cages. All three shout, hands up. The bank president, C.E. Larson, sticks his head out of his office in the back room and Hurley tells him to stay put and he won't get hurt. 
Officer Nelson hears the heads up command and grabs his sawed off shotgun when Hurley enters his booth. One report notes that, quote, in anticipation of trouble, apparently Olson was carrying a sawed off shotgun. Why was trouble anticipated? Exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my first question is, um, that doesn't seem like it's standard issue. So do you bring it from home? Right. And then also, what was he? Why was he anticipating trouble? Was he tipped off? Mm-hmm. Well, this leads a little bit yeah. to uh, husband's theory. theory, right? Husband's theory of the um, the, uh, the police organizing the whole thing. So the bandit shoves his gun into Olson's ribs, ordering him to hold up his hands and sit down. Instead, the guard drops his shotgun, seizes the bandit's weapon with his left hand, and draws his revolver with his right. I'm guessing the revolver is the standard issue gun. Mm-hmm. You're a fool to fight. I've got it on you, Hurley says, <laughs> reaching for another weapon and discharging several times the one which Olson had grasped. So um, it sounds like Olson's holding the gun while Hurley is shooting it like crazy. Wow. So while Hurley is in the back room with the officer, the other two go to the cashier cages and tell cashier Chester Eklund to hand over the cash. He moves very slowly on purpose. At the same time, Eklund is slowly filling the bags with cash. The bank president takes his revolver out of his desk. Because, of course, the bank president has a revolver in his desk. (laughs) Probably all the customers and all the employees did, too. Uh, The stenographer screams... And cashier Eklund goes to her. Upon leaving his cage, he is shot. One report says that he was shot by one of the two bandits. But in a second report, it says Eklund was shot by Hurley when he was emptying his gun while fighting with Olson. It makes more sense to me that he was shot by one of the other two uh, since he was going back to the back room, which was away from the other two that were in the front. Um, but toward where Hurley was. So if Hurley had shot him, he'd have been shot in the chest unless he walked into the room backwards, which doesn't seem like he would do that. (laughs) Trust me, I basically walked through this with different office supplies on my desk to be all the different characters. And the only thing is I don't know what the layout of the bank was like. They just described that there's a lobby and then there's a back room or a back area that has the policeman's booth the bank president's office and the safety deposit box room right and so other tellers are open they're all out in the main area yeah that's my understanding anyway so yeah i had like my i had an eraser i had a a stapler i had all these things to try (laughs) all the different characters try to figure out who's standing where and i think i mean it seems like he had to have been shot by one of the two that were in the other room. Um, So one report says that Hurley's bullets allegedly hit a customer who was in the safety deposit room when the bullet goes wild and ricochets from a steel lining on the door and hits the customer in the hip. (gasps) This could have happened as long as the door to the room was open. But again, I don't have the layout. Right. So Hurley is shooting like crazy in that back room. Into the back room. And it's possible. I don't. If the safety deposit room is near there, I guess it could have flown off and hit him in there. So, yeah. But as we'll (laughs) see later, the official reports are that Hurley didn't hit anybody. That they were all the other two. Which I, I, I don't think is correct. Anyway. So now 
While Hurley is struggling with Special Officer Olson, the other two covered the employees and customers in the lobby and ordered them to stand against the wall as they scooped money into a bag. Now that both Eklund and Hurley have been shot and are down, the bank president, Larson, now comes out into the main room shooting. Hmm. <laughs> Olson, the officer, also now comes out of the rear room shooting. Uh, so back to the other two bandits. The report says after the older of the pair had closed the bag, he signaled to his younger companion, who with two guns stood on guard. As they joined and started for the door, the older man said, they've got him, referring to Hurley. So they decide they're leaving. <laughs> Not going to stick around trying to help him. Um, this is a quote from Nels Olson, the officer. I was ready to open fire on the other two when I heard Larson's cry of don't shoot. There's too many people there. And I didn't. The bandits were escaping out the front door. As I turned again, the man I had shot was moaning and trying to get up and I jumped for him. I was asking him what he had to say for himself when he died. Wow. <laughs> That's intense. Yeah. <laughs> and original. What do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> you bandit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the original article stated that that Hurley died immediately. So I'm not sure which one is true. I like this version better. <laughs> um, but Nels Olson is kind of a badass either way. <laughs> the paper interviewed him for an article on near death experiences later, like a couple months later. And this is this is his quote. When the bandit poked his gun into my ribs, I felt safe enough. But when the next instant I decided to brush the gun aside, it never occurred to me that I might be successful. As I swung my arm around on the revolver while the bandit looked me in the eye, I expected instant death, and I involuntarily held my body rigid to receive a bullet. Wow. I didn't know you were supposed to do that. Is that a thing you're supposed to I, do? Apparently. <laughs> I had a reckless feeling, much like that of a poker player who risks his last handful of chips on a <laughs> pair of deuces, only more intense. <laughs> oh, wow. That great? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Meanwhile, my body went as cold as ice. When I realized I was still alive, a wave of elation swept through me. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so the two bandits who were still in the bank got away with the third in the getaway car. The fourth being Izzy. <laughs> oh, you mean the, be the getaway? The getaway, right? Yeah, that was, there was a, one article I read that alluded to that, but I actually don't. So you don't think he was involved at all? I actually all? don't think he was involved at all. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The more I think about it, the more I think he was not involved at all. Um, and maybe that's... Why were they using his name? Well, um, they arrested him, I think... You think they arrested him for something different? No, and got... I think they arrested him because he, was, he knew the guys. And maybe they thought at the time he was the getaway driver. Um, but, you know, they arrested three, three guys kind of at the same time. Um, after Hurley's death, St. Paul police sped to Minneapolis and planted themselves at Hurley's house. Shortly after, a man arrived in an automobile and entered the place. He was immediately arrested and taken back to St. Paul, where he was held pending further investigation. He gave the name of Ed Turner. So he's one of the three that was mentioned in the beginning and then never again. Um, he's 35. They give his address on the paper like they used to do back then. And they say he's a relative of Hurley. So he was the first one arrested. Then James Pierce and Harry Bloom, Izzy, are arrested the same day. 
they say they were arrested also at Hurley's house. So I'm not sure if that's true, but he. it sounds like he. they weren't there when Ed Turner was there. So the first report says no money was taken, but this will change too, because in a later article, it says that the loot is estimated at $1,915, $1,715 in cash and 200 in Liberty bonds and coupons. Ooh. Some of the cash was recovered when the getaway car was found. They overlooked $35,000 in cash and $500,000 in securities in their haste. <laughs> so if they hadn't been so hasty. Right. Would have gotten, haste oh, there makes was, waste. Right, exactly. Then Vincent Samick was also ID'd by the bank president and was arrested later that day. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. He was arrested the next day. The car used by the bandits was later found abandoned but still running in front of 826 James Street in St. Paul. A shotgun and a pair of hunting boots were found in the car. The car was owned by C.A. McRae, and it was stolen at 1.45 a.m. in front of the Oak Grove Hotel the day before. Mm. The bank is at 991 Payne Avenue, and in the basement is a new uh, music venue. Oh, so, that sounds like fun. I think we got to go. Mm-hmm. The drive from Payne Bank to James Street, where the car was left, is about a 23-minute drive on the freeway now. But, of course, the freeways, I don't believe, were there back then. Um, it's about 40 minutes avoiding freeways and highways. So my guess is that the roads were even less fancy or whatever back then. And so it probably took even longer. All right. So Hurley is named the same day ID'd by the bank president. But police knew Hurley anyway, um, not just because he was a former cop. Uh, he was St. Paul, though, not Minneapolis. But he had been arrested just a week prior to the robbery and was turned over to the feds who wanted him in connection with the, quote, forgery of a fake bond for whiskey release. What's whiskey release? Well, I don't really know. And I tried to Google it and I couldn't really find anything. But I'm thinking that he forged a document and used it to get whiskey. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Um, he was released pending further investigation. And he had a reputation among police as being the leader of a hijacking ring. Uh, the next time this is mentioned in the papers, they announced Ed, James and Harry are still held. Uh, the newspapers say that they're still held, but Izzy's arrest record says they were released on the 20th. So I don't know if they were really released the same day they were arrested or if they were kept for another couple of days. Right. I think, you know, now that I'm looking at all of it, I kind of think that he was arrested because they thought he would know something. And they because thought he just he was a he person ran of with those people yeah. and he's a person of interest and they thought he might he squeal wasn't involved in that one. He's probably going to be involved in the next one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> probably. They knew he was, you know, bad news bears. So, um, OK, January 25th, Alfred Lindbergh was arrested at 359 Walnut Street in his room. Detectives rushed the man before he had time to use the forty-five caliber revolver, which they declared the man had in bed with him. He was injured in the fight he made against the arrest and was under examination at the St. Paul City Hospital. His name and address were found in the possession of another man, also alleged to be a member of the bandit gang. So when they arrested somebody else, Alfred Lindbergh's name and address was in 
their possession, mm-hmm. which tells me it had to either be Ed, James, or Harry, because those are the ones they've arrested so far. On January 26, it's reported that Alfred Lindbergh confesses and confirms Hurley and Samick. The paper actually says that he broke down and confessed to the police chief. However, there's some confusion as to whether he was one of the three who entered the bank or if he was the getaway driver. But he confirms that Samick was there and he implicates somebody new. Meet Charles Whitey Shanzi. Ooh. Lindbergh says he might have been in the party when asked by the police. He was unable to positively identify Shanzi as one of the members of the bandit gang, though. He said the police had pointed out Shanzi to him while both were in jail. So if he's unable to confirm that, that tells me that he didn't know Shanzi until the police pointed him out. Okay. But I, I could be wrong, but that's what it sounds like to me. So there is no mention of Ed Turner, James Price, or Harry Bloom, the original guys, anymore. Shanzi is arrested as a suspect in the robbery on the 31st. Um, According to Frank W. Summer, the chief of police in St. Paul, he's been identified by Mrs. Mary Sherlowski, the sister of Vincent Samick, one of the bandits. Unleash the power of stories anywhere, anytime with Audible. Immerse yourself in gripping stories, insightful knowledge, and captivating characters anytime, anywhere. Audible is your library on the go. With hundreds of thousands of titles across every genre, there's a world of reading waiting for your ears. Listen while you cook, clean, or commute. Free your eyes to conquer your day, all while feeding your mind. Start your 30-day free trial today and discover the joy of listening. Go to audibletrial.com slash TAC. That stands for The Activity Continues. With your free 30-day trial, you get one credit, two credits if you're a Prime member, good for any premium selection titles you like, yours to keep. You get the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. Listen all you want. No credits needed. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash TAC. If you're a regular listener, you know we love our three spirit drinks. They are the non-alcoholic spirit drinks that are taking the world by storm. Three Spirit is a range of three distinct drinks, each with its own unique flavor and effect. The Livener is a refreshing and invigorating drink that is perfect for starting your day or night. The Social Elixir is a smooth and sophisticated drink that's perfect for sharing with friends. And the Nightcap is a calming and relaxing drink that's perfect for winding down before bed. All three drinks are made with plant-based ingredients and are free from alcohol, gluten, and sugar. They're also vegan and ethically sourced. So whether you're looking for a delicious and refreshing drink to enjoy on its own or a sophisticated non-alcoholic alternative to cocktails, Three Spirit is the perfect choice for you. Try Three Spirit today and discover the difference. Visit us.3spiritdrinks.com and use the promo code THEACTIVITYCONTINUES for 15% off your entire order. Cheers! That one was the best one yet. 
I looked up Mary Sherlowski and I couldn't find anything about her or that even that she was related to Samick. But I really can't find much about Samick to begin with. I can't I can't find his address. I can't there's not much about him at all. Never mind his sister. Right. It's worth noting that Shanzi had been arrested in Minneapolis in December 1922, so just a month before the bank robbery, on a charge of burglary, and he was out on a $10,000 bail. Ooh, violating his Yeah, I'm situation. sure. I'm sure. So his trial was set for January 31st, but of course the robbery happened before that. He had appeared at the Minneapolis police station to answer to the burglary charge and was immediately taken into custody. Oh, wow. So, what? Mm, interesting. He went to the police knowing he had just committed a... I think he went maybe to... Maybe he didn't really... Maybe he wasn't part of the, the bank robbery. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe because if you were part of the bank robbery, maybe you avoid the police. Yeah, you probably wouldn't just... Show up and be and like, hey, say, hey, I'm here on that other thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I... Yeah, I don't... Because we don't really know who's there, who participated in this. No, no we only know. <laughs> There's a lot f- of conflicting information there really happening. Is. There really is. <laughs> yeah. So um, February 2nd, uh, Lindbergh pleads guilty to first degree robbery and is sentenced to five to 40 years in Stillwater Pen. So this is like two weeks after. Five to 40 five years. Five to 40 years. Yeah. That's Could, a lot. That's. Um, uh, yeah, it is. And I do think that he was involved. I do think that he was the older of the, because he was 55 at the time of this. Everybody else was young. They were in their 20s, early 20s, 21, 22, 23. And um, I think that he was the older one when they described how the older guy was putting the money in the thing and the younger guy, you know, he signaled to the younger guy. I think he's the older guy. And I find it interesting how fast the wheels of justice were back then. The robbery happened on January 20th, and Lindbergh is already brought to Sentenced. the Stillwater pen, sentenced and taken to the pen by February 2nd. That's pretty quick. Right. Actually, probably lucky for him, as we'll find out. Shanzi pleads not guilty to first-degree robbery when he's arraigned on the 3rd. On the 6th, so just three days later, we already have a trial. Uh, Samick and Shanzi are on trial for first-degree robbery at the Ramsey County District Court. Samick goes first, and he gets a life sentence, quote, under a statute making a robbery of a bank punishable by life imprisonment. So just robbing a bank gets you life in prison. Wow. I don't think that's how it is now. No, we know it's not. No. Yeah. I mean... Well, just because you're sentenced to life doesn't mean you're going to actually right, but, live it out, but... But I, yeah, I don't think that robbing a bank now gets you automatic life in prison. No, I think some things have probably changed. Yeah, I think a lot of <laughs> stuff hope. has changed. I think a lot of stuff has changed. <laughs> the article states that uh, a jury could not agree on Shanzi's portion of the trial. So another trial had to be done. That's the way they described it. So I assume that's a hung jury. I think that's what that means in his case. On March 8th, Chester Eklund, the bank cashier, dies. Oh, Chester. Poor Chester. At Mounds Park Sanitarium. Of his wounds. Now, I, he was shot in the spine. He was shot... At first it said he was shot in the back, and then another one I read said that he was shot in the left, like kind of his back, 
side and it went so it went through his spine like vertically or no sorry horizontally through his spine and then the bullet came through onto his other side but it did not exit so it's still in him Oof. yeah and it shattered a couple of bones and stuff that were like poking in where they shouldn't be so i would imagine yeah he didn't i mean they didn't even in the newspapers they didn't even act like he was gonna survive at first they were. They were like, oh, he'll probably survive, but he'll be paralyzed from the neck down or waist down. Um, but then afterwards they were like, oh, he's probably not going to make it, <laughs> which yep, he didn't. I don't think we do that. <laughs> put that in the paper anymore. <laughs> kind of defeatist. But um, yeah, so he passed away. Meaning that um, now instead of a bank robbery charge, Shanzi is facing first degree murder. Even though right, it's clear, of course he, he is. Yeah, he did not shoot Eklund, um, and I believe that the law, at least now, I think it is, if you're involved in an incident where somebody is murdered, even if you didn't pull the trigger, you are still going to be you're going to be tried for murder. So I think it's because basically you should have stopped it, and so yeah, you don't have to be the one to pull the trigger. I'm pretty sure that's the way it is now. And that sounds like that's the way it was back then because everybody knows Shancy didn't murder this guy. Right. So, um, but yeah, he's, he's tried for first degree murder. The trial is continued until March 26th. Um, Lawyers typically seek continuances because they want more time to prepare for the trial, which makes perfect sense now that it's all of a sudden a murder trial, not just a robbery. Right. Um, the trial actually didn't start until April 3rd because they were having trouble selecting the 12th juror, which there might be something there. There might not. I don't know. That just seems <laughs> I'm suspicious of everything. So April 3rd, Shansi is on trial for murder. He is named as the getaway driver. He never entered the bank. They never said he did. He denies he helped with the robbery. He admitted he knew Hurley, but was not involved. Shanzi is the first and only witness who spoke in court on his behalf day one of the trial. He was still on the stand when court adjourned. The next day, April 4th, witness testimony is on this day. His father, his mother, and his sister all say he was at home with them until noon. There are six other people who are alibi witnesses for him, but the state has three witnesses whose testimony does not bode well for him. These three are Frank Rickman, who is a cop, but at the time under bond on a charge of highway robbery. The cop was? The cop. Mm-hmm. So he's not a credible witness. No, I wouldn't think so. He says he saw Shanzi jumping from an automobile in Minneapolis last November when Rickman was taking him into police headquarters. He said that a pistol, two jimmies, and other paraphernalia, which could be used as burglar tools, were found in the automobile. So basically, that's like circumstantial to say that he, well, he a month ago, two months ago, had burglary tools in his car. So, yeah, he did it. He must have done it. So Charles B. Tilden is the other witness. He is the next door neighbor of Vincent Samick, who ID'd Chansey as the getaway driver after seeing him at Samick's home a short time after the robbery on that same day between 10 and 11 a.m. I don't know why they would go to his house. And the timing doesn't work out for me because if the bank robbery was at 930 and they ditched the getaway car in St. Paul, Paul, 40 minutes away, 
That does not give him time to get back to Shanzi's house by 10 o'clock or even by 11 o'clock, probably. So I'm a little suspicious of that. George Borcher is the driver of a truck that was parked near the bank who says he saw Shanzi in an automobile near the bank at the time the bank was being robbed. Even the two already in prison, Samick and Lindbergh, were both called as witnesses for the state, but they would not confirm or deny that Chansey was in their gang or involved in the robbery at all. Snitches get stitches. So. Exactly. Um, bah, 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 bah. Oh, his poor father had been bedridden for months, Chansey's father. He insisted on being present and appearing as a witness against his doctor's advice. So they hauled him in there oh into the courtroom and propped him up on the chair and his doctor stood right next to him the whole time he was giving his testimony oh my you know so april 5th the next day the jury argues for 31 hours before they are locked up without an agreement so the following day after 40 plus hours of deliberation shanzi is convicted of first degree murder sentenced to life in prison at stillwater state he is not accused of taking part in the actual shooting but is alleged to have waited outside in the, quote, machine while his accomplices staged the robbery. When the verdict is read, they asked him if he had anything to say before the sentence was passed. He said, I am not guilty. I'd rather a thousand times murder a million men than to ask my father and my mother and my little sister to lie to save me. Wow. So, hmm, nutshell, Samick was convicted of the robbery, on an old statute that said a bank robbery earned a life sentence, Lindbergh is convicted of, quote, highway robbery and sentenced to five to 40 years. Shanzi is the only one convicted of murder, and he wasn't even in the bank. Do we have a definition of highway robbery? Actually, I was going to read that, and then I forgot. It's a term used figuratively since the late 1800s, and it alludes to literal robbery of travelers on a public road. Oh. So would that also count for trains? Train robbery was oh, a big sure. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet. Yeah, or maybe they have another word for that. But yeah. So, huh? I don't really see how that's not doesn't apply to a bank. bank. Mm -mm, shouldn't. Okay. So fast forward to June of 1925. Shanzi tried to appeal. In court documents, State versus Shanzi, the conviction murder of bank officer is sustained. The accused must make his objections when evidence is offered, not after the trial. Which that's the lawyer's job, right? I would think that and the if lawyer he didn't do that, didn't do his job there. Mm -hmm. the, I'm going to quote the document that I that I got. Evidence which would have been excluded if objection had been made was received without objection. Our rule is that the defendant in a criminal case must make his objections that he may not take chances on the result. And if it is against him, then make an exception. Nor do we find that there was misconduct of counsel, which should result in a new trial right. in offering incompetent evidence. The defendant could have objected and taken a ruling an attempt to continue may have constituted misconduct. We do not approve of all of the county attorney's examination. Some of it was unfair. But they flat out say, oh, yeah, that case was bungled, but you didn't say anything at the time. So they touched on the witness testimony of the one guy, the former policeman, um, Rickman, the one that was under bond for highway robbery. 
Um, they brought up that. Okay, so he brought up that he arrested him in November of 1922, and the car had in it the gun and the burglary tools. Shanzi's lawyer did object to part of this, but not all, so it remained in the trial. But the appeals court didn't think that the story's inclusion made any difference in the outcome. Oh. The issues were, this is a quote, the issues were submitted by the court with entire fairness. There was no exception to the charge. The facts were in direct dispute. They were found by the jury against the defendant and the verdict should stand. Judgment affirmed. So back to jail for him. I just wanted to give a recap of where all these people ended up. Yeah, let's hear it. So Charles Shanzi, uh, one thing I discovered after we talked the first time, um, the three, there was the three witnesses that spoke against him. I found another article that mentioned that three other people testified that they had seen him climb out of a getaway car where it was abandoned. But that only came up in his first trial. Um, the trial was for entering a bank on the purpose of committing a felony. And that was his first trial that ended up in a hung jury. But again, that doesn't make sense that he would have been climbing out of the getaway car in St. Paul, Paul when he is supposedly at, what's his dude's house in Minneapolis? A lot of lying going on. I know. I know. Who knows? Who knows what's... Yeah, we really don't know. I was hoping that somebody would be alive that would fill me in, but... There's nobody that I can find anyway. Charles Shanzi was released from prison in 1935. So he served 13 years of his sentence. Wow. I can find no details about his release. I searched on what his life was like after. Uh, I do see that by 1937, he was a, quote, traveling commercial photographer. Huh. That same year, he was also beat up and robbed in a beer parlor in Kansas City. In 1938, he was shooting newsreels. So he was like, they would hire him to come and do a, a story about this little, their little town or something like that. And then nothing else about him until 1966. He was arrested for drunk driving and had to do 30 days in the workhouse and pay a hundred dollar fine. I don't intend to be, I don't want anybody to think I'm representing him as like a poor little boy that didn't ever do anything wrong um, because he did do some shit before the robbery. So in late 1922, the police were looking for him in connection with a raid at a private home where several thousand dollars worth of bonded whiskey was stolen. Now, it, the newspaper article that I first saw was in October of 1922, and I have a feeling this is the arrest that they're for talking the, about Yes, where he had the yep. burglar stuff in his car. Yep. Three men posing as dry agents. These are the men who worked for the government and would conduct raids on homes to confiscate illegal booze. Um, these men went into this, a man's home and conducted a fake raid. A couple of days later, one of the men, Frank O'Neill, confessed and said that he had planned the raid and that he and another man, a current member of the dry squad, John Eartham, and one more named O'Keefe, stole the whiskey and brought it to Shanzi's home where they divided it up. So he may or may not have driven a car. He may or may not have. He wasn't at the, in the house. That is for sure. Um, he didn't go into the house and help with the fake raid. O'Neill actually had been a dry agent. He had been fired a few months before this. But the other man, Earthum, was still a dry agent at the time. But the raid was not sanctioned by the dry squad, they called him. And so he had just gone rogue and staged this fake thing and then he got fired the next day 
Aren't you glad that dry agents are no longer a thing? Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, my God. So this I thought was funny. So their lawyer said, it is impossible to steal liquor, which was obtained by a person subsequent to the enactment of the federal prohibition law. Since liquor so obtained has no monetary value under the sale, its sale being prohibited. Stealing of anything, he said, implies stealing something of monetary value. So they're saying because it's illegal to sell the booze, it actually isn't worth anything. But it's actually worth so much more. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's typical lawyer speak, right? The kicker is that O'Neill, the guy who planned the whole thing, he complained that his portion of the whiskey was stolen from his house by the other guys. So he got he got uh, probation. They all got probation. Nobody nobody did any time for this. And also O'Neill admitted that he was drunk when he did this. Uh, <laughs> so I do think this is the arrest that um, that Rickman was talking about in uh, November of 22. Just a few weeks before the bank robbery on January 6th, he was arrested at a garage on Lindell Avenue in an automobile, which there was a quantity of alcohol in pint bottles. Who was he with? James Pierce and Harry Bloom. Harry Bloom. Harry. Um, Izzy's arrest record does show this one and says he was released January 9th to the St. Paul police. Um, Vincent Samick, uh, he was paroled in September of 1951 and discharged from parole in April of 1953. But in 1955, he claimed that the state owed him $150,000 in damages on the grounds that he should have been paroled after serving 12 years of his life term. He was 64. The state pardon board records show that he admitted his part in the robbery, but said he never fired a weapon. Okay. He argued that keeping him in prison the additional 16 years was a violation of his legal and constitutional rights. I could not find anything about what happened to this hearing. There was nothing ever mentioned. The last article said it was going to be heard, quote, today, but then there was never anything else about it. So I don't know if he won his 150K or not. Alfred was older than the others at 55 when the robbery happened. Um, so he would have been born in about 1867 or 8. He died in prison in 1935. I can't find the reason, though. It doesn't come up until 1955 when Samick is trying to sue the state. It just mentions that Lindbergh died in prison. I found very little about him in the papers before the robbery. And what I did find, I'm not even sure is him. But this is a couple of weeks before the robbery on January 8th, 1923, the same week that Harry and those guys get caught with booze in their car. He's arrested for sending a threatening letter to a wealthy farmer in Hopkins. The name's Fred Holosek. The article itself calls him Frank Lindbergh, but the letter read, send me $100 immediately as pay for injury you have done me. Otherwise, harm will come to you. Ooh, that's threatening. Yeah. Holosek, the farmer, says he doesn't know anyone named Fred Lindbergh. But the article called him Frank Lindbergh. I don't know if that's a spelling error or what, but anyway, so it sounds like he tried to bribe somebody. And then um, the thing that kept me up or that woke me up in the middle of the night was the realization about who was the Hennepin County attorney at the time. His name was Floyd B. Olson. And as we'll come to realize over time, this man was notorious for being a friend to the criminal underworld. It's worth noting that he got his job moving up from assistant county attorney when the previous county attorney was fired for taking bribes. Huh. Yeah. 
In this particular case, I no longer believe that Izzy had anything to do with the robbery. I originally thought Olson pulled some strings and got Izzy out of it, but I'm leaning more toward he was just friends with the guys who did it. Uh, but that's not to say that Olson isn't the reason that Izzy didn't pay for some of his other crimes. Um, the why about Olson is interesting, and I would like to cover his connection on this podcast too, but I think we should save it for another time. So that's the story of that robbery. I think there's a lot more to it. I wish I knew everything, but there's enough there that I find there's some interesting stuff. So it was around this same time that Izzy's bootleg operation was fully underway with his brothers Yiddy and Harry, actual Harry. He formed the Minneapolis Combination sometimes called Ooh. the Minneapolis Syndicate. When I think of combination, I think of combo, and I'm just imagining Izzy as part of like a jazz trio. would <laughs> <laughs> be awesome. <laughs> a quote from the City Pages article in 2015, by 1927, they were operating under the guise of a barber supply outfit called La Pompadour, which allowed <laughs> them to buy industrial alcohol. They transformed it into, quote, bang up alky a 139 proof liquor that sold for $10 a gallon. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It is, especially back in the 20s. <laughs> yeah. Because like a, I I want to say there there was a the $10,000 bail. I think that's something like $260,000 now. Where do these people have that money? Well, you don't really need money, you know. You I don't mean, need you, all you, of it? you take a I don't know how bail works, but you don't you, you that's what bills bondsmen do. They like put up part of it, and I don't know how it works. Yeah, I don't edit this all out. <laughs> I don't, I'm talking out of a hat that's not on my head. I love that we're keeping that. I do that all the time. I just didn't know that term for it. So we'll cover more of the bootlegging and the alcohol transport in the next segment, along with. His first murder. Murder. Also, we'll be able to tell you the story of how I, Amy, learned about Kid Can through our friend Melissa. Excellent. Thanks again for giving us your time. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like some extras, visit us on Patreon. You can follow us without subscribing. It's free. Or you can support us there, too, if you wish to, for even more extras. As always, I'm looking for more personal stories from people who are descendants of folks who knew these characters. So please email or leave me a message. The details are in the show notes or description. Bolstered Land is hosted by me, Amy, and Heather. It is produced by me and is part of the Collected Sounds Podcast Network. The theme song is The Last Prayer for Isidore Blumenfeld by Paolo For Lee. The background music is The Velvets by Canel Elanian. Okie doke.